Anyway, we're going to read Luke's Gospel, and it's chapter 16. Chapter 16. If you've got one of the uh, red church Bibles, if you want a Bible, actually, if you put your hand up, there's somebody coming around with them at the moment, and it's on page 1050 of the church Bibles. It's chapter 16, and we're carrying on our series in Luke, and in a moment, Phil's going to come up and uh, take us through this passage, but we're going to read from verses 19 to 31. 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abram replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So Phil's going to come up and take us through that passage. And as he does, I'm just going to pray for Phil. Heavenly Father, we just want to pray for Phil now as he brings us your words to us. We pray that you use him as your mouthpiece, as um, your vessel, so that we can hear you speaking to us. And Father, we pray that as we listen to you, that actually our hearts and our minds would be changed and become more and more like our Saviour, Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, if you could have your Bibles open to that passage, we're going to look at it now. If you're new here this morning, um, our our tradition is to follow the Bible through verse by verse without skipping bits we're not comfortable with. I'm afraid that's one of those, this is one of those passages this morning. And I, I just want you to bear with us because through it, God speaks. And that's our trust, that's our conviction. And that's my prayer for us this morning. I thought I'd start this morning... Uh, by showing many of you who wonder about my bicycle helmet that I do actually own one. Ten years ago, a friend brought this for me because he felt I should wear uh, a bicycle helmet while cycling on the roads. But the thing is, I don't wear it. And to be truthful, I don't like wearing it. Why? Well, there are two reasons. The first is is pragmatic, and and I'm going to be very honest. They're just not very cool, are they? 
I mean, I mean, James Bond, you don't see him. Jack Reacher, you don't see him wearing a bicycle helmet. They're just not very cool. And if it looks uncool on them, well, it's going to look uncool on me. So I don't wear it because it's uncool. That's the first reason. And the second reason is I've been cycling for over 40 years. And I haven't had a cycling accident in all that time. So if an accident is going to happen, it's actually going to happen to other cyclists. I'm not going to have an accident after all those years. That's my two reasons. Now, I can see that many of you are riled by my attitude to, to, to my bike helmet. And before you determine to lecture me at the door for having such a poor attitude, let me tell you why I start with this illustration this morning. You see, today's passage is about hell. And the reason why my cycle helmet is relevant to today's passage is because my thinking about cycle helmets is very similar to people's thinking about hell. For example, like me with my bike helmet, you'll find many people say about hell, and actually they're often religious people, I don't believe in hell because it's just not cool. I don't want to put people off by telling people about hell. Some even say I don't believe in hell because a loving God couldn't create a place so horrible. For many people, hell is just not cool. And like my thinking about having an accident on my bike, other people simply cannot believe hell is for them because hell happens to other people. Other people like Pol Pot, Chairman Mao, and cyclists who don't wear bike helmets. But like the risk I take of having a bad accident every time I get on my bike and don't wear a bike helmet, so too... Everyone who does not take hell seriously is also at an enormous risk. And that's what Jesus tells us in our passage. And the reason why I start with this illustration is because it tells us about the attitudes of those who have rejected Jesus in verse 14 of of Luke chapter 16. Look at verse 14 with me in your Bibles, just ahead of the passage that we've seen. It says this, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They were very religious. They looked like they were serving God but, God, but Jesus knew their attitudes. They had status and power, and they were in love with money and themselves. So in verse 15, Jesus tells them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So Jesus warns them about where their sneering attitude leads. In other words, in this passage, Jesus is saying the only judge who matters knows you're not right with him. And he knows it by the way that you reject Jesus' teaching. And that's why he tells them this parable. Because this parable is a warning. A warning of the consequences of rejecting Jesus' teaching and living for self. And by being a warning, it tells us that God holds us responsible for our actions against him. He holds us responsible for our sin, for wanting his stuff and not wanting him. And that judgment and punishment is coming. But at the same time, we have to remember that God loves us enough to warn us. 
He loves us enough to offer to take our hell upon himself. We'll see that in a minute. He loves us enough to teach us about the consequences of our sin. That's why it's here. So this is not an easy message to hear. And neither is it an easy message to preach. But in it we see it is bed, it is infused with the love of Christ. It is embedded on the love of God for people like you and me. And the imperative is for us to listen. To really, really listen. And listening means not just opening your ears. It means saying, I submit to this truth. I submit to this truth. So the first thing that Jesus teaches is that hell is real. Look at verse 19 with me. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So Jesus starts by painting a picture of two people who are complete opposites. The rich man was very rich. In the parable, he's almost a caricature of rich. The rich man had everything. In Jesus' day, purple dye was the ultimate luxury garment. Purple clothing was the ultimate luxury garment because purple dye was so expensive. The modern equivalent of this guy's wardrobe would be filled with Versace and Armani clothes. The fine linen that is mentioned there in verse 19, is what they used for underpants. Today it would be like buying 400-pound boxer shorts from Hermes. He lived in luxury. And then contrast with that with, contrast that with verse 20. It's, it's kind of the opposite. It flips. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came to lick his sores. So the rich man had a gate and a wall because he lived in luxury and outside it all was Lazarus who was longing for whatever fell from the rich man's table. By that they mean the leftovers that they used that they threw onto the floor for the guard dogs to eat. So here's the contrast. In the rich man's house there's food for dogs. In Lazarus in Lazarus's world, he was so sick and malnourished that the wild dogs licked his sores. And although there's no hint yet of where the story's going, it's an uncomfortable picture, isn't it? And it's uncomfortable because deep in our hearts, we know where it's going. Jesus is going to call out the hearts that refuse to listen to him and insist on mocking him. Hearts that think that because things in this world are pretty good, we don't have to think about the world to come. Hearts that put... Faith in status and security in something that is not God and refuses to think about eternity. And perhaps that's us this morning. Well, look at verse 22. The time came when, beggar, when, when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. In Jesus' time, Abraham was seen as a symbolic father of everyone who genuinely trusted and believed and loved God. So the implication here is that Lazarus loved God and was a faithful believer, whatever his circumstances. But look at what happens to the rich man. The rich man also died and was buried, verse 23, in Hades, where he was in torment. And that's where the real teaching of the passage begins to bite. You see, the Pharisees would have been sitting around mocking Jesus, ridiculing him for his teaching and being, uh, and, and uh, his teaching about being God's children and how money can be an idol. But he's called them out for their selfish worldview. And Jesus warns them that their behavior has very real eternal consequences. 
So in the parable, Lazarus dies and goes to heaven, not because he's poor, but because of his trust in God. The rich man dies and goes to hell, not because he's rich, but because of his rejection of God. And at the end of verse 23, we read this. He looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. And he called out to them, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So in hell, he can no longer tell himself that God is not there. Or that his life has been okay. I've I've always done my best. I've never hurt anyone. Was his lifelong excuses. In that sense, his reality is exceptionally different. But then also there's similarities between here and there. There, There's no sense in which there's a, a confession or an apology. His heart is still in the same place. It's self-centered. It's self-absorbed. He's still thinking he can get people to do what he wants. Oh, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to just send me a glass of water, will you? His attitude in hell remains the same as it was in this earth. People in hell do not come to their senses. They don't see things as they really are. Instead, their unrepentance carries on. So however we are by the end of this life, at the end of this life, repentant or still unrepentant towards God, that's how we will stay beyond this life. It's a sobering truth that hell is real and the consequences of how we have listened to Jesus are real. And as much as this warning is for us now, I'm very aware that this teaching also bites because many of us have loved ones who have died rejecting Jesus' words. And I'm sorry for your loss. I'm terribly sad for the spiritual condition that your loved ones died in. I don't take away from your loss and grief and sadness at their passing. But can I also encourage you, don't let that get in the way of your spiritual condition. Don't let that get in the way of your relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus' warning here is firm and loving. He's warning people who won't listen in the anticipation that there will be people who do. And if you'd like to pray with someone after the service and share your feelings, your sadness, your grief, then please do come to the front. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to share. And we'll seek wise and godly church partners who will pray with you and love you. But secondly, Jesus also wants us to see that hell is just. From what the rich man says in verse 24, it's clear that he's wanting his situation to change. He's wanting some kind of relief. But look at verse 25. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But he is comforted here and you are in agony. That's the reversal that God's justice brings. And our starting point has to be the contrast between these two men at the start of the parable, which we know is unjust. That's the unjust thing in this parable. And Jesus is saying we also need to know that God will ultimately bring justice. 
when our lives and human history is ended, it will finally end in absolute, complete justice. So if you are still outraged that Jimmy Savile lived absolutely the golden life, didn't he? He was buried a national treasure, a hero of my generation particularly, who wrote letter and after letter after letter to Jimmy Savile, please fix it for me. And when he died, there was such a loss, a generational loss of people. Oh, he was my hero. He fixed it for so many people. He didn't get to fix it for me, but bully for them. And after his death, his crimes came out. And the national headlines was, is there no justice? Well, Jesus tells us there is. And we will all be fully satisfied that justice has been done for people like him, for people like you, for people like me. And that's the reversal that God's justice brings. All injustice in this world will be undone when Jesus returns. And in verse 16 of Luke 16, Jesus tells us that his kingdom is coming. And it means God is going to end the way things are now. He's going to end where people can ignore God and have their own way. And he's fully and finally going to establish his rule, which means if you are like Lazarus this morning, there is something to hope for. That glorious day when we see Jesus face to face and all justice is, all injustice is dealt with. Lazarus may not have had anything in this life, but you know, as someone who said to God, Jesus is my Lord and my God, he'd lived his life wanting God, not God's stuff. And finally God comes and he sees his face and loves him. But for those who have the attitude of the rich man, the kingdom of God is dire news. Because on that day, we will realize that wanting God's stuff is pointless. And that we never had a relationship with Jesus the King. And the truth is that if we don't listen to Jesus, if we don't let him radically change us to be part of his kingdom, then there is no basis for letting us into his kingdom. And that's the stark warning for those of us who don't call Jesus our king here today. What we've decided about Jesus in the present, God will confirm in us in the future. And the question we have to ask is, what what are we going to choose? We can live life saying that hell is uncool or that all my friends are going to be in hell because I'd rather be with them. But we're back to bike helmets again, aren't we? Are my friends really good friends if they mock wearing bike helmets? No. Do I really want to cycle with them if they scorn something that keeps me safe? No. Well, the same applies to our eternal destiny. Just because our friends reject Jesus, that doesn't mean it's right or cool or safe. What are we going to choose in this life? The last thing Jesus says is hell is final but avoidable. Hell is final but avoidable. Look at verse 26. 
And beside all this, between us and you, says Abraham to the rich man, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor anyone, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. It's obvious why the rich man would want to cross from hell to Abraham's side, but it's not possible. For the rich man and Lazarus, things are, to use Jesus' words, fixed forever. And how we respond to Jesus in this life whether or not we ask for his forgiveness and accept him as king, will, will be fixed. Where we stand here is what will be fixed in the next life. There are no second chances after death. And Jesus wants us to avoid it. That's why he came to die on the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus took our place before God. So that when God looks at Jesus on the cross, he sees our sin. When God looks at Jesus on the cross, he sees our attitude against him. And God punishes Jesus instead of us. And so Jesus didn't just suffer a physical death on the cross. He took a spiritual death too. That's why he cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because God had forsaken Jesus. He was suffering the punishment of hell on our behalf. And he did it so that we can avoid hell. He did it so that we can avoid spending even one day of the rest of this life on the wrong side of God. Let alone a day in eternity of hell. And in the parable, Jesus teaches us to respond to him now. Look at verse 27. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers... Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone goes from the dead goes to them, they will repent. You see, the rich man in hell understands that hell is real and people need to avoid Uh, need a warning to avoid it. So he wants Lazarus to come back from the dead to his father's house and tell them personally because he thinks it will convince his relatives to repent. But Abraham says, well, no, they've got the Bible. That's what he means by the prophets and Moses. And the rich man says, well, that's not enough. They need a miracle. They need God to do something totally convincing in front of their own eyes. But Abraham says in verse 31, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if they won't believe what God has said in his word, they won't change their hearts, even if he does something miraculous before their eyes. And today Jesus would say that we've not just got the record of God's word that points to Jesus. We've not just got the record of God's word that points to Jesus. We've also got the record of Jesus himself. We've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we've got a record of how Jesus came into this world at Christmas time. We've got a record of his life, his miracles, his, his resurrection, his death. And that is way more evidence to go on than any time before us. And people often say to me, well, I'd believe in God if he did something that clearly showed proof of his existence. But they don't see that to ask more of God is getting God to do God their way. Do you see it? God has given all this evidence. He's told us about Jesus. And yet we turn around to God and say, well, I'm not sure about that. Just, just not, not, not really, not really convincing for me. 
Jesus has come. What more proof do you want? God in human flesh teaching these things, these real hard things. If this were just a made-up story, this passage would not exist because it just reduces the sales levels. No, Jesus has come. He's taught us real things. And that is as much revelation as we need. And it's as much revelation as we need on his terms. And we don't, therefore, need anything added to this revelation other than this. And the message is this. Hell is avoidable. Hell is so totally, totally, utterly, indistinguishably avoidable. But you have to avoid it on Jesus' terms. And open this book and believe in what Jesus has said about you and about me. About you and me and about God. And believe that God has come in human form, in the person of Jesus, and has died and taken the punishment of hell on our behalf so we don't have to. And if you want the evidence for that, then just look at his resurrection. Because in his resurrection, we have the ultimate, ultimate declaration that everything he said about himself is true. And he will, he will come to this world again in judgment and in in ultimate salvation. Hell is avoidable if we believe on everything that Jesus has given us as evidence for salvation. I said at the start that this parable is a reality check on where we stand with God. If you don't know where you stand with God this morning, simply ask this question, is Jesus my Lord? By that, it simply means, is he the most important person in my world? More important than my family, more important than my friends, more important than my worldview. Is Jesus Lord, the commander, the one who rules my life? Is Jesus Lord? And if the answer is no, and you want that to change, then do talk to me afterwards. Talk to your friend. Talk to someone. Do not leave this room until you have spoken to someone who will show you how you can change from being I am Lord to Jesus is Lord. Because that is the challenge of this passage this morning. If you believe Jesus is Lord, you will see him face to face and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, because he loves you and you have declared your allegiance to him forever. For Christians here this morning... Let me just finish by asking you to think back to the shock you felt at the beginning of this sermon when what I said about bike helmets seemed to be so arrogant and dismissive. That's the shock I hope that we feel each time we hear those around us dismiss the, the idea of eternity and eternal, and eternal consequences for the way that we dismiss God in, in this life. Can I encourage you to hold on to that shock And and hold on to that feeling out of compassion. You see, too often the Christian culture can be so absorbed by what we've been saved for, for, for security and safety in this Christian family and the wonderful hope that we have in eternity with Jesus. And and we find ourselves so, uh, so, our thinking so absorbed in that direction that we forget about what we've been saved from. That reality of hell. And we forget that many around us do not love Jesus. 
and are therefore wandering aimlessly towards that eternal destruction. So as a church, as individual Christians, we're not to be like the lifeboats of the Titanic that rowed away to safety, half full of grateful passengers. We're to be like the lifeboats of the RNLI, who tirelessly give up everything to save the lost and the hopeless, who will not stop until their boats are full. They know what they're saving people from, and they give everything to seek and save the lost. And in a far greater way, let's be passionately motivated, driven beyond all driven, by our compassion and our love, by our energy, by our time given to seeing the lost in this world, the lost in our workplace, the lost in our family, the lost in our schools, the lost in our friendship groups, come to know the salvation that Jesus offers. Let that compassion drive us. Because we know that Jesus' warning here about hell is true. And we can share the love of Jesus and the hope that we have in eternity with those around us. And let's pray. I, I ask that, that, that this passage above all passages motivates our prayer in compassion and love for the lost around us. Pray that we would be used. Pray that we would be used by God so that his work of salvation saving the lost might be done so that we would see his kingdom here on earth as we will one day see it in heaven. Let's pray together. Dear Father God, we, we thank you for your word that is challenging we don't take these words lightly. We don't skip over them as though they are irrelevant. But we take the time here this morning to ponder your word and why you have put these words in the Bible for us here today. Lord God, I pray for, for those of us here who do not know you as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray that the eternal consequences of our decisions now would be so real to them. That they would cry out to you, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, I pray for all of us here who are Christians this morning. I pray that we would never be smug about eternity, but rather filled with compassion. I pray that we would never think that this church is here for us and it's about me, but that our thinking would be about the lost and our compassion would be for the lost and our time and our energy and our money and our giving and our confession would be that the lost would be saved by the loving God who came to this world to die for us. Lord God, change our hearts, I pray. Change our minds, I pray. All of us, without, without exception, that we would declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his glorious light.
I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.